0: All right, I'm Jason Whitlock, the host of Speak for Yourself on Fox Sports 1. I'm filling in for my man Curtis Schoon here on Schoon TV. We got a very special interview today with Curtis Schoon. Curtis, welcome to your own show. Oh, man. (laughs) Thank you for having me, Jason. Well, listen, I actually suggested this because there's a lot about Curtis Schoon that I want to know. Curtis Schoon is someone that I discovered over Twitter just randomly uh, saw something you tweeted out. I was like, damn, that's interesting. And then saw something else. And I said, well, let me go check this dude's Twitter page. Somebody keeps putting his stuff in front of me. And I mean, that had to be maybe five, six years ago. I can't remember Mm -hmm. how long started following you. And just Twitter doesn't give me the full perspective on Curtis Schoon. I was lucky enough to come out to DC a year, year and a half ago, and we got to have dinner when I was out there, but there's still a lot about Curtis Schoon I want to know. And so I just kind of assume there's a lot of people that have had a small taste of what Curtis Schoon is about, but want to know the full Curtis Schoon story. So Curtis, I'm going to try to dig a little deep let's go uh so i just want to start out where did you grow up
1: new york city queens hollis queens
0: hollis what time frame is this Um, two parents mom and dad brothers sisters give me some more detail
1: uh i grew up in queens from the the 60s through the 80s and um uh, I lived with my mom and my stepdad. And uh there were initially there were seven of us.
0: Because, apartment house.
1: In a house, a private house. Yeah. The the mortgage was was cheap back then. I think it might have been a hundred and something dollars. For a house that's worth about six hundred thousand today.
0: Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. What'd your mom do? What'd your stepdad do?
1: My mom was a she was a housewife. My stepdad, he he was a mechanic, and he did uh, air conditioning and cooling at the time. Various jobs. He's very good with his hands. But he basically took care of his family, seven kids. And um, I remember us getting a new station wagon like every two or three years.
0: Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that sounds like a middle class upbringing?
1: Pretty much. You, you know... Um,
0: I mean, mom at home.
1: I, I would, I would say so, yeah. And, and we went to Catholic school, yeah. We were definitely middle class. We had our rough patches, but we did, did you know your good. dad? Absolutely, I know my dad. Um, I was separated from him from age six to twenty one,
0: yeah, because
1: yeah, just you know, him and my mom, things they went through and so on and. He was kind of away, a distant, physically from
0: me. Gotcha. And so, Catholic school. Were you an athlete? Never. Never an athlete. Were you Catholic school? Is this predominantly white? Predominantly black. Black Catholic school.
1: White nuns, but uh, black students.
0: And so, your brothers and sisters. Where do you fit in? Older, younger, in the middle.
1: I'm I'm the oldest of my mother and father's kids. My father remarried and had three sons and had a daughter in between his marriages. And I'm close with all of my siblings through him. And my mom, she had three kids altogether, and I'm the oldest for her.
0: Okay, so based off of Twitter, you kind of went to the University of Hard Knocks, it feels like. Oh, yeah. Uh and so Definitely. did you go to college did you cuz you're very smart did you or how much education formal education do you have
1: Formal education I have 1 year of college
0: Where at Hampton
1: you- University
0: Oh you went to Hampton Yeah Oh
1: I I went there as part of a legal strategy I had um I was on trial for 6 B felonies and anticipating a conviction, I wanted to give my attorney something to work with, you know, and I I, I also want to say a lot of us, we don't understand how things really function. No matter how much money you give an attorney, you have to give them something to work with. Otherwise you'll be giving them your money in vain. So I kind of anticipated the possibility of a conviction and I applied to school on my own. I got accepted to Hampton. And when I did get convicted uh, of a felonious assault charge, it was the least serious of the charges I had. Um, my lawyer, he pleaded with the judge to continue bail pending appeal because I had a strong uh, uh, appellate case. And eventually I did overturn that conviction So I'm conviction-free to this day.
0: What age is this that, you know, you go to Hampton, you're facing these six felonies?
1: Well, um, I went to trial in 1986. So I was 21, about to turn 22. And then I went to Hampton that that fall.
0: And so... As without getting you I don't know how comfortable you are. But
1: I, I'm very comfortable. Okay. Let's go. Let's what, let it rip. What
0: were you doing in the streets to be facing six felonies?
1: Well, um, what had actually happened is a guy, he, he was selling marijuana. And he stole some money. And some people I know, they kind of roughed him up a little bit. And I was there. So we all got charged, and it turned out he was a confidential informant, and he actually was there, sort of like I, I guess, to try to set us up some kind of way, you know. But because of his own greed or some kind of miscommunication, it was uh, thought that he stole something that didn't belong to him, and yeah, he got he got roughed up a little bit. So that that was the felonious assault charge,
0: and then so you you. You grow up in this middle-class environment, two parents, mother, homemaker, go to Catholic school. What was your attraction to the streets? Why the street life?
1: I, I, I don't blame anyone for the choices I made, you know? And, um, I remember being about eight years old and listening to the soundtrack of Superfly. Um, I hadn't seen the movie, but I was just mesmerized by that soundtrack. And I saw the, I saw the drug dealer and the criminal and the gangster as a, a sort of hero. So when people say that entertainment and pop culture doesn't influence, it does because I'm not a stupid guy. And it grabbed me, albeit I was eight years old, but it still had a strong influence on me. And I always saw the streets as a way to to prove my manhood and my valor. I, you know, my motivations wasn't that of others. A lot of people, when they go into the streets because they're motivated by money. To me, I'm motivated by the challenge. Everything is a challenge for me. That's where my motivation comes from. I figured if I could go through that and survive it, and I'm something special, you know, and, and that that's how I looked at it.
0: And so how involved in the street life were you? Again, you say you beat this one felony conviction. And I think I've seen you say I've, that you've never I've been convicted never. of anything.
1: I've been charged several times with, with various crimes from home invasions, uh, attempted murder, a whole lot of different things armed robbery, all of that. I've been charged with all of that.
0: Well, most famously, obviously, charged at one point, or accused, 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 not charged, accused, accused of the death of Jam, Jam Master, Master J. J. Yeah, And I've heard you give a pretty detailed explanation of that, I think in a Breakfast Club interview. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what it also made me like, if someone tried to frame you for the Jam Master J murder, that means they think, you're a believable suspect for that type of violence.
1: You know, when you get in trouble with the law and you're a black man, right? It doesn't take much to be a believable suspect because we don't get that much credit to begin with. But then when you look at the type of charges that I've had in my past, that only compounds that reality. Now, I was, I was charged in 85 with the case that I appealed and overturned. But what that did was it put me in a, what's called Rogue's Gallery. And once your picture goes in the mug book and you've been charged with a certain type of crime, when similar crimes occur, your picture gets circulated. And my picture was picked out for something i knew absolutely nothing about as a matter of fact uh no one believes me but other than that first charge the other charges i didn't have anything to do with the first charge yeah i was there some things went on and 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 also i just want i want everyone to be mindful because i was never convicted of a crime you will never hear me confess to anything that I was never convicted of. So I will talk around certain things. But obviously, my life took me through certain paths. And, and, and you know, my charges were all sort of uh, crimes of aggression, somewhat violent in nature. And that, that that's pretty much it. So, yeah, when, when I was uh, accused, I fit the M.O.,
0: and then you don't have to give a long explanation because you've done other interviews on it, but walk me through when and how you were accused of the murder of Jam Master Jay. Were you friends with him? Did you know him? Did you, you know run him? in those circles? I,
1: I knew him. Um, if we were friends, I don't think his killer would be walking around i don't even think he would have been killed if we were friends he, his situation is a result of the company he kept and i wasn't in his company you know he you know i don't know why he chose the people he chose to be around but that's on him but i had nothing to do with any of that as a matter of fact i you know it had, by the time he had died. I don't I think it had years it went by since I saw him or even communicated with him in any way, shape, or form.
0: I heard you say, I think on The Breakfast Club, that you were pushed into that as a way to take attention away from the people that were actually in the room when he passed away or when he was murdered. But you know, let, let, let me flush it out. You know, I am glad and this is probably gonna
1: be the last time I talk about this, okay. you know. But and this is the perfect uh platform to do it on my uh, own platform, you know. <laughs> look, look. <laughs> but um here's the thing. Jay gets killed um October thirtieth, two thousand and two. It's a Wednesday night, it's a cold, rainy night. That very night People in the music industry were blaming individuals connected to Murder, Inc. records. Now, Murder, Inc. is a label that was under Def Jam, which was under Universal Music Group. And Murder, Inc. was connected to a a notorious individual from Queens named Kenneth Supreme McGriff. Now, why people were blaming them, I don't know. And the fact they were blaming him so quickly, I don't even know what the connection was. I received a phone call from an individual named Donald Francois that night. And he says to me, man, you heard what they're saying? They're saying Jay is dead. And my response was, man, I don't believe that. He probably just got shot. They just love all the drama because that's my a, a perception of hip-hop. It's just a whole bunch of hype and, and drama and and it just they all just get worked up over every little thing. So I thought it was just the usual, you know, and um it turns out that it wasn't. The very next morning they were on the radio station, still blaming people. Ed Lover was on the radio station crying and boohooing and pointing fingers. None of it was at me. By the next day The focus shifted. And I believe that uh, individuals connected to Def Jam were doing damage control. Because you got to understand a French company named Vivendi was in the, the middle of purchasing Universal Music Group at the time when all of this happened. And I think it was... It was eventually sold for $13 billion around that time, shortly after. And here you have Universal, through Def Jam, headed by Leo Cohen and supposedly Russell Simmons. One of their subsidiaries is a label called Murder Inc., and the head of it is called Irv Gotti, named after John Gotti. And they have a very real relationship with a convicted drug kingpin named Kenneth Supreme McGriff. Now, whether any of that is relevant to the situation has nothing to do with the optics. It doesn't look good. Now, could it have affected the sale? I don't know. It could have have definitely affected the selling price. Because if you're buying a distressed asset, yeah. you know, you, you understand? Mm-hmm. A lot of money was on the line. And the only thing that I recall is that the night of Jay's death, I saw Leo Cohen outside his studio on TV. I also saw Chuck D, who looked genuinely, you know, disturbed. And I, I saw Jay's oldest son And his name is Jason as well. And for what it's worth, I saw that boy, his face was so wet from tears. And at that time, I didn't even know that the wheels were turning to point things in my direction. But to this day, the look I saw on that young boy's face as he was going into manhood, I'm just so glad that I wasn't responsible for that look. I don't know who was, but I'm glad it wasn't me. Because even then, without knowing which direction they were going, I felt really bad for that kid. He must have been about 14 years old. And here he is, he lost his father at a time he would really need him. You know, so my, my thing is with the, the whole implication, I think obviously someone threw my name out there. The police knew it wasn't me. I think because of my history, it was okay to dangle me out there as some sort of distraction while they worked the real case. The police never even questioned me. Never even questioned me. That's how weak the accusations were. I've never been questioned by the police. They put my name out there. I think I was a decoy.
0: How long did this hover over you? A week, a month, six months?
1: By Friday, which was November 1st, was when my name started circulating. And I contacted a lawyer, Marvin Kornberg, because I'd been in trouble enough to know that I didn't want to talk to the police without legal representation present. And the strategy for that is because I didn't want them saying I said anything I didn't say. You know, a lot of people, they talk about the police, but they don't really understand how we get taken advantage of. The focus for these idiots is that get pulled over by the police and argue with them. <laughs> oh, that's nothing. You're a donkey if that's your problem, because that's easily manageable. Just shut the fuck up, show them your license and insurance, yes, sir or no, sir. and that's it. Yeah. You know, when you're being investigated for a crime and the police are more interested in closing cases than solving them,
0: yes.
1: that's when shit gets real. You understand? Mm-hmm. And and I and I know this. So I talked to Kornberg and I said, listen, man, uh, I don't have any money. I said, I can't afford you. Kornberg's a big lawyer. He represented John Gotti's uh, son-in-law, Carmine, uh, whatever his name is, and, um, Justin Volpe, the guy who put the plunger in Abner Louima's ass, and the four cops who, uh, who shot Amadou Diallo. He's a big-time lawyer in New York. At least he was at the time. And I called him and I said, listen, man, I can't afford you. I said, all I want you to do is go in with me for questioning because I, I just needed the edge that if they were going to arrest me, they couldn't say that. I said anything. I wasn't going to be my own worst enemy. So I met with Kornberg on on a, on a Saturday, the the 2nd, and he was going to a bat mitzvah. That's for the Jewish girls when they come of age. And he said, listen, man, I'm going to call the police right now. And he did in front of me. And he said, I hear you're looking. Do you want to question my client? They said, who's your client? He said, Curtis Schoon," And he said, I'll bring him in on Monday and if you, if you pick him up before then, just know that he has legal representation. He got on the phone, he said, be at my office on Monday and we'll walk over there. Monday was November 4th. I wake up November 4th and I'm looking at the TV and the media is outside the precinct. They're waiting my arrival. They're waiting for, for me to come. I get to Kornberg's office, I'm ready to go. In my mind, I thought I was going to prison. I was going to jail that I was going to have to fight it from jail. Cause I didn't have any money. You know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. I didn't, all this stuff they was talking about, (laughs) all I needed was a, I just needed a fighting chance. So I gave Kornberg a thousand dollars to go with me to the precinct. And it was the best thousand dollars I ever spent. Because when I got to his office, he said to me, "Did you see the news?" And I said, "And you know, he got that Jewish New York accent. Did you see the news?" I said, <laughs> "I said, yeah, I saw it. Yeah." He said, um, "He said, well, we're not going." I said, "We're not going." I was mad. I was not mad, but I was like, "I'm ready to go." You know, I had on two pairs of socks, two pairs of underwear, two T-shirts. That's my starter kit until I get a visit. You understand? Because I, I, I'm, I'm very clean, you know. But 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 anyway. Uh, he says we're not we're not going over there. I said why not? He said because the last thing I want is for people to see you going in that precinct, and then all of a sudden they start having these false recollections, saying I think I saw it. That's the guy I saw outside. And th- these things happen. These are real issues. These aren't. I'm driving a hundred miles an hour with the baby in the car seat in the back, smoking weed, getting pulled over, and talking about. I need somebody to send another cop. These are real issues, man. So I said, okay, cool. He called the police and he told him, he said, we're not coming unless you charge him. So he raised the stakes. They asked him, is he there with you? And he said, he's sitting right here in my office. If you charge him, I'll walk him over. I waited in their office for an hour with Kornberg talking to him and the other attorneys just like we're talking. The phone rang. It was the moment of truth. Kornberg said, okay, okay. And he put the down phone. He put the phone down and he said, that's it. You can go. He was a little disappointed. He wanted the action. <laughs> <laughs> he, wow. he was a little disappointed. He, he was looking for the action. I mean, that's, that's his element. You yeah. know what I mean? That's a big case, high profile case. A legend is killed. This man is charged. He didn't care about the $1,000. He wanted that action, but not at my expense, though. And I walked out of there and never looked back. They had nothing on me, nothing, absolutely nothing.
0: Huh. And so that story and being involved in that, is that what got Playboy interested in you in terms of writing about you? Later? Well, here, here's what happened.
1: Because two weeks before that incident, I had completed a, a screenplay called 1013, which is the New York City code for officer down. It was about the killing of Edward Byrne, a rookie police officer in 1987. And um, looking to maximize things, I reached out to Playboy. They had a a submissions email, right? So you sub, you submit articles. So I just emailed him and said, listen, I, I don't have an article. My name is Curtis Schoon, and I've been accused of this. And um, I haven't talked to anybody, not even the police, but I'll talk to Playboy. And within a week's time, the features editor at the time, Christopher Napolitano, no, mm-hmm. hit me back. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget his email. He said, this is one of the more curious emails I've ever received.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Call him back and ask him about the emails I sent him. Go ahead.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And, And he talked to me. But I understand the game, though, because something you said when I interviewed you, a lot of people don't understand the game. They don't know what the other side is looking for they're just so busy thinking about their needs and their fears and their concerns and nobody really gives a fuck you know what i mean and it's not even a racial thing everybody's out here, kind of sort of looking after their self-interest and if what matters to you is not in their self-interest why would they stop what they're doing And, and and for some reason a lot of us don't grasp that you know but i do i do and i did So Chris was feeling me out. He was gauging my intellect, my authenticity, all of those things. And I was aware that we were communicating by email and I was just showing him that, look, I can articulate. I'm not some, I'm I'm, I'm not, no, no shots, but I'm not a member of the Wu-Tang clan. (laughs) Nah, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, Like, I'm not that guy. You know what I mean? In fact, I don't even know guys like that. I don't associate with guys. And that's no knock on. them. Nope. I'm just functioning on a different level. So any anyway, we got on the phone and he told me, he said, you know what, Curtis, I'm going to pitch this to my editors. He said, but I think you're the best person to pitch this. And he put me on a conference call with New York and L.A. and I don't know. Because one of the things I sold them on is that they were planning on putting Blue Cantrell in Playboy. Playboy was looking to cross over and get an urban audience at the time. And I told them, this story will get you far more urban readers than Blue Cantrell ever could. And I, I remember when I was on the phone with all these people, I didn't know who any of them were. And I'm pacing the floor in my boxes on the phone. And I'm I'm telling them the story. And when I was done. All I heard was, wow, what a story. And I heard somebody else say, what a life. Next thing you know, I'm in Playboy and Blue Cl- uh, Cantrell never made it. you know. And that's how I got it. And then the reason why I put the story in Playboy was to get exposure for my script, 1013. Because I heard uh, Brian Grazer from Imagine Entertainment. He had a, a first option deal with Playboy for their article and i thought that was a way to get get on hollywood's radar and that's the only reason i did it
0: did it work
1: no it did not
0: why do you think it it hasn't worked because and then when did when did you come up let me go here when did you come up with the i'm a street guy to i want to make documentaries movies i want to get into the hollywood world how did that transition happen
1: well, you, you know, let me say this. I shouldn't say it didn't work because from the Playboy article, I was I was part of a book deal. And the book deal led to my work with American Gangster, which introduced me to documentary filmmaking and where I got my credits from. It worked. It just didn't work the way I thought it would mm-hmm. work. But it absolutely worked. And I became a published journalist because... I finessed um, a thousand word sidebar in Playboy called Framed and Defamed, which worked to my favor. And I was paid for it for all the deliverables I was able to get. You see, my thing is I'm able to go through the hood and get people to talk who normally wouldn't talk. I I, I guess you could say I'm persuasive.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So when did you Curtis school say, I want to get into script writing, book writing, <laughs> documentaries. When did that idea and that transition happen?
1: I was I was more or less looking for a way to transition and turn turn trauma into a come up. Turn, you know, uh, I say it all the time. My view on life is a blessing and a curse are one and the same. The difference being in the application. So I had no real legitimate foundation to stand on i could only stand on the things i knew and those things involved well gangsterism or whatever you want to call it you know so i had to make that work for me so how do you make that work for you without in indulging in it everybody thanks to rap everybody's so fascinated by gangsters and the street life and this that the other so i look to monetize my experience
0: okay and that leads to a much larger question because i look at the rap world i look at what master p had going on in the south and he tried to make movies and th- and and things like that and i'd always say why doesn't he get someone credible to help him write his scripts why isn't there a tyler perry for the rap industry and someone like you helping them develop scripts that are on a high level. Why is the, the best thing that's ever been told about the streets on the small screen or big screen was the wire that was done by two white dudes, David Simon and Ed Burns. How come these stories can't be told by Curtis Schoon and some of the intelligent guys who can put together a sophisticated high level black urban story. You, you want the truth? Yeah.
1: I'm going to tell you the truth, and I don't care who don't like it. Fuck them. The Wire, those guys got a lot of help from people in the community. No question. They did not know that story or do it on their own like that. The, though, They got a lot of contributors, you know, and the thing is, what I've learned in, in my experience, I'm not going to indict the whole industry, but a lot of these people they want the credit and the pay and they don't they don't want to share that you know i I experienced that um even with the book i'm a i'm the contributor but how am i simply a contributor when the idea is my idea when when my playboy article was the foundation of the successful pitch that the author had nothing to do with when i titled the book and all the contacts were mine when i made sense of everything that was going on i even edited the work before it was submitted to the editors see technically i'm a co-author right however and this is this is not um this is not an indictment of the author ethan brown this is an indictment of a system where we, guys like me, are expected to work in anonymity for damn near free. And that's just how it is. These people don't want to share.
0: Okay, the but, but the perception is, and the reason why I'm asking you this is because based off of what I see on Twitter, you actually have have interacted with Jay-Z, Diddy, Everybody that allegedly has a lot of power and a lot of financial influence. I don't understand how you haven't connected on a business relationship with some of these guys so that we're putting out our own high level. I don't want to take a dump on anybody, but it's like, I tried to watch power. It's too stupid for me. How come I don't understand how, you're not involved with power. Or, <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that's comical to you, but 50 Cent allegedly is doing this. I just don't.
1: A woman writes power, and it's written for women. And that's why, it's, and it's not written for intelligent women because it's just it's low lowbrow television, man. And just like a lot of things, like reality shows and so on and so forth, it's a soap opera. It's not meant for people with any semblance of intelligence.
0: You know? Gotcha. (laughs) But again, help me in. Maybe you don't want to answer. Go ahead. But I'm just saying, Jay-Z, Diddy.
1: Jay-Z is a backup dancer who became a very successful rapper. You know, there's, there's an old Memorex commercial, you know, um, when, when, There, it was a reference about when live enters the room you know
0: when lies L-I-E when live,
1: when live enters the L-I-V-E. room L-I-V-E L-I-V-E enters yeah. the room you know everything else gotta leave so I'm live and he might not be you know what it is with these people man let me stop talking in circles man I I don't want to be too blatant here but a lot of these guys like to be the only black guy in the room See, and because it seems like there can only be one black guy in the room. I don't know how valid that is because I've never been the only black guy in the room to even know if there's validity to that thinking. But that thinking is common among us. A lot of black people in position because we're so reliant on whites are afraid that another black person who enters the room with them could displace them and take their coveted spot. So no, they would not. What? It's not in their best interest to bring me around because if you're a two-bit street guy like Jay-Z and you bring me in the room, what do they need you in the room for anymore? You understand? So I, I get it and I respect it. And I'll give you another example. I, I sat down the um, 4th of July weekend at the Bellagio with Irv Gotti, Nick Cassavetes, and a bunch of other people I don't really remember. And I was there to convince Nick Cassavetes that I could help out with a movie about Freeway Ricky Ross from Los Angeles. Ross was in prison at the time, about to be released. And Irv had a relationship with Michael Linton who was the head of Sony Pictures. And my role was to help Cassavetes become comfortable with writing the script, like I could be a resource. Instead of me being the guy to write the script, I could be the resource, you know. And I impressed Cassavetti so much that it was over. My chances of being on that project were out the window. Casavetti's end up getting a million dollars to write the script, a script that uh, I've been told is like the worst garbage. But he's Cassavetes. He can get a million and it not turn into anything, and he'll get another shot. And I, I think Nick's, a, I mean, I don't know him, but we communicated. I think he's a good guy. You know, but again, I'm not going to get those kind of looks, man. You know, they would have offered me maybe 50000 to write that script. And if I messed it up, uh, I might not get another 50000
0: Well, your analogy about when live enters the room, I, I've experienced that in the journalism industry, particularly among, but it cuts black, white, whomever, but particularly among my black peers. It's, it's almost like, and they'll be pissed that I'm saying this, but I don't care, it's just factual. It's like I'm too good, and that how good I am makes them look not as good. So how can we get this guy out of here? And that's what I ran into at ESPN. It's like me showing up diminished a bunch of other folks.
1: Yeah, because you raised the bar. Yes. And I raised the bar as well. Yes,
0: that are running around, blah, blah, blah. And again, this is where I go back to why I like Fox is because that's not the atmosphere. If you can raise the bar and you can bring other people in that will help you raise the bar, they're all for it. I, Black, white, and blue. The documentary you mm-hmm. did. is Has that been the most successful thing you've done so far in that lane?
1: Monetarily?
0: No. no. Impact?
1: Impact? Uh, personally, it's the thing I'm most proud of. Gotcha. Yeah. It's the thing I'm most proud of. Because two people. Myself and Asia, a young black female, we set out and made a movie from beginning to end. We did 90% of all the work, just the two of us, on that project. While she was in school, while I'm running a business, all of that. And I learned and have such an appreciation for what it takes to make a a film from post-production and everything. And and not only that, you know the irony of Black, White, and Blue is that it's a a film on social commentary, race, politics, and police, all the issues that you hear about. But because it wasn't told the way that's supposed to be told, it didn't get the support. For all this fake... Support of black women? Asia never got the support. There's no woman her age who has made a film like that to this day. Black woman. Not one. She should be celebrated. But because of the narrative, these Negroes aren't free to like what they want. They don't even know what they like. Somebody got to tell them what to like. The year before we completed the film, it was a, another documentary called Who's Streets? And it was about the Ferguson riots. It was at Sundance. It got picked up, everything. What was Who's Streets about? It was made by a black woman, but what was it about? It was about a fictitious lesbian couple during the Ferguson riots. You understand? As much real drama that was going on in Ferguson. Whose idea was it to inject this fictitious narrative? It definitely wasn't the people whose streets it was. You see, we submitted Black, White and Blue to over 20 film festivals. By the 20th film festival, I kinda got the idea that we were persona non grata in that world. And my frustration with liberalism comes from maybe a different place than yours, or maybe similar. But it has, it has gone beyond political ideology. It has now transitioned into some sort of social engineering, specifically as it relates to black people and our concerns. The only time we are heard is if we speak to the issues that matter to them. If we frame our issues within a context that's palatable to their audience, that's not authentically black. I see a lot of people saying unapologetically black, unapologetically my ass. You're doing these things because this is how you get your money. I don't have anything against LGBT. I don't have anything against anybody, white people. I don't care. My concern is why am I not free? to express myself sincerely why do my views always have to reflect those of people who I don't even have any any kind of relationship with or anything I don't relate to them and their issues
0: you've hinted at it here I've seen you in other interviews or other settings you just you talked about the issues you dealt with dealing with the police and what the real issues are. Once they bring you into the precinct, that's where the real drama actually starts. And, and it seems like you're indicating here again, is like as a black person, if you want to talk about what's really impacting black men in the criminal justice system, they're like, no, 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 no. We need you over here talking about, this lightning getting struck <laughs> when, when, cause the police kill someone controversially 25 times a year. We need you talking about that rather than the thousands or perhaps even millions of interactions with the police inside the precinct that actually really does damage the black man.
1: Listen, man, let me give you some examples. I was charged with a crime in Nassau County. um, I requested a lineup. My lawyer advised against it. But even as a young man, I took control of my defense. It's my life. I'm not going through the motions with you, man. I didn't do it. I don't know anything about it. Let's get the lineup. Why did he advise against it? Because if I was picked out in the lineup, it's positive ID and that's tough to be at trial. But I know it wasn't me. The lawyer might have thought I was lying because we always lied, yeah. you know what I mean? There's a lot of lies. <laughs> yeah, so anyway, uh, we did the lineup. The police says, we don't have anybody your height. You guys got to do the lineup sitting down. We did the lineup sitting down. They didn't pick me out. After they didn't pick me out, they wanted to hairs us talk because they might recognize the voice. All these chances to get me picked. Do you know afterwards I found out the perp was 5'10 and I'm 6'4"? The reason why we did the lineup sitting down is because if we did it standing up, there was no chance I'd be picked out. You see, these are the things that the police do. See, I don't, I'm not making excuses for the police, but I, I don't have any kind of patience with assholes. You get pulled over, shut the fuck up, man. That's it. Just shut up. Don't argue. you, you If they do something wrong and violate you, file a complaint, hire an attorney, put Call your congressman, call call your city councilman or something. Put pressure on their ass like that. You with your big mouth and inarticulate ass, you're not going to do nothing but get hurt. Another another example. I'm on a pay phone. I get pulled, The police pull me over, not pull me over, pull up on me. They arrest me. They put me in the car. They charge me with a, a robbery of a jewelry store that had taken place several months earlier unbeknownst to the police i didn't even live in new york at that time i provided proof of residency out of state and proof of my whereabouts on the day in question out of state took it to the grand jury case dismissed at the grand jury a lot of times your lawyers will advise you not to go to the grand jury because whatever you do at the grand jury it's in the record it's in the minutes And that's why they say you can indict a ham sandwich, because most people don't present a defense at the grand jury. They wait to hear what the prosecution has and plan for trial. I took my case to the grand jury and won, and rightfully so. I wasn't even in New York. But these are the games the police play. When you want to talk about profiling and so on and so forth, Man, fuck! Stop and
0: uh, stop and frisk.
1: Stop and frisk. If they stop you, frisk you, and you go home, you did good. You know what I mean? Look, you did good. It's it's about when you when they stop you and take you in.
0: Look, I've seen what like the media will get all hot and bothered about. There's a former pro baseball player named Doug Glanville. Mm-hmm. Uh, the he lives in Connecticut in some predominantly white community. He was out shoveling snow in his front yard. The police came by. They thought he was uh, a loiterer or something. They came by and asked him, what are you doing here, blah, blah, blah. The interaction was two or three minutes. The police left. He wrote a long-ass piece (laughs) about, I was profiled in my front yard by the police, and look at this mistreatment, and how dare they come into my front yard, and look at this rampant racism. I'm reading it. Having had a lot of family, have some real interactions with the police, and I'm like, man, you're telling a positive story. You you had an interaction with the police, and they left after three or four minutes. Never put a hand on you, never, and they left. And all it was was they questioned whether. I said that's a positive. Yeah. How could? And I go, but everybody's up in arms. And I'm like, we can never get to the real shit. Yeah. And that, again, I think goes back when live shows up, everybody gets scared or they don't want to deal with it. And so when the real shows up, people are afraid. Let me ask you, following you on Twitter mm-hmm. and just keeping it a 1,000% real, I'm not saying anything I haven't said to you in private, there was a time when I was like, man, are you really this smart? <laughs> Who's feeding you? <laughs> this shit who is come on, is this really you saying this and so I think that's people's reaction because dude you well researched you make analogies and point out things like this dude is well read where did this come from how did you again where, where, if you're not formally educated through the school system where did this deep well of knowledge come from
1: um I have a really really good memory. I retain information.
0: Not as good as
1: I used to, but I'm still pretty good. You know what I mean? And uh I just don't forget things, man. I just don't. Information I I remember. I started reading, I believe,
0: when I was 3 years old. Politics. Yeah. What are your politics?
1: Um I'm not really political at all. I believe when it comes to black people, we should be independent voters and just vote to our interests, whatever they may be, and they may vary from state to state, from locale to locale. Sometimes they may be in alignment with Republicans. Sometimes they may be in alignment with Democrats. I think we, I think, for people who focus on politics so heavily, we play the political game wrong. Oh, we, we need to fund our own candidates, and that way we are ensured that they represent our interests. Because politicians really serve the people who fund them. And we know the black community doesn't fund any politicians, which is why so many of us have become apolitical and don't even care about politics, because we're told all this good stuff, and they blow smoke up our ass, and then afterwards they... They take care of the people who put money in their pockets. And and rightfully so. Even though I don't like it, I respect it.
0: You know, you put money in Coleman Young Jr.'s pocket. What's your interest in Detroit, Coleman Young? Explain that.
1: Okay. I, 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 I backed Coleman Young, yes, twice. And there's two main reasons. I see all this stuff going on nationally. And black people being politicized and and mobilized for political causes in one shape or form. But in Detroit, which is 85% black, I, I really wanted to show that we don't need other people to get behind our candidates. We can fund and get our own candidates elected. I fell short both times but I wanted to do more than talk there's a lot of people on social media who just talk they've never they never paid anything for anything but lip service uh Coleman is a very how should I say it genuine person almost uh innocent in a lot of ways and 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 that's that's rare for a person, much less a politician. And that is exactly why the establishment didn't want him. The DNC um, endorsed Mike Duggan, the incumbent mayor. It's the first time they endorsed anyone in Detroit, because they never had to. There's only Democrat candidates in the city, but they wanted that Democrat, who is under investigation, by the way, by the uh, DOJ. Nobody wanted Coleman. And When he ran for Congress, they wanted Rashida Tlaib. You see what she's doing? She's part of the squad and talking about Palestine. They've ran so many black candidates to split the the vote that it would be possible for her to get elected and go to Congress with this foolishness that she's with. My interest in Detroit and Coleman is this. I want Coleman to run for mayor As an independent in 2021. I want them to have a real general election. Not a remix of the primary with the top two Democrats going at it. You beat them once in the primary, you're going to beat them in the general. Let's have a real election. And my hope this time is that he has enough backing that he wins. And it sends a signal to black people all over the country that you don't have to deal with this dichotomy. All you have to do is get your own candidates to look after your your interests if you're so politically uh fixated play the game right. I w- All I want is for Detroit to be a model and, and and numerically the numbers are there for it to happen. You don't need a whole lot of money. You just got to get people on the right page. You're tired of the Mayor Mike Duggan right now, you know? The timing may be right. I don't know. It may be a dream. I haven't even really discussed it with Coleman in depth, but that's what I want.
0: Would you ever run for political office? No, I would not. I'm
1: too honest. I have no filter. And to be quite, to be quite frank, since we're on school TV, I think that a lot of these motherfuckers are just too dumb and lazy. And somebody needs to tell them because they've been coddled and told that their bullshit works when it obviously doesn't. They need to make some adjustments. And I'm not just talking about our community. I'm talking about a whole lot of these donkeys out here. You know, if you really want to make change, you got to start with yourself.
0: You know? What do you do beyond the filmmaking, your Twitter persona? What do you do for a living? Um, I'm partners in an outpatient
1: mental health facility. Um, We serve about 1,000 clients and have about 20 W-2 workers and about 40 contractors, the vast majority of them black. But here's an interesting thing that black people should know. I love black people. I employ mostly black people. I'd say upwards of 90% of my employees are black. However, our problem isn't really, our biggest problem isn't racism. In my opinion, our problem is so much deeper than that. I've had five black clinical directors for my business. And, you know, they they some of they perform better each one, you know, cause I'm learning as I go, but my current clinical director is a white man, an openly gay white man.
0: Yeah, that's surprising from from you.
1: Well, and and, and I'll, I'll do you one better. My assistant clinical director, whom he chose, is an openly gay white woman. Now here's the here's the kicker, my business is performing better than it has ever performed. And do you know what the sad truth is? The black workers respond so much better to the white authority figures. And we can talk about reparations, and we can talk about racism, But until we fix that problem, what does it all mean? Do you know how much it hurts me and my partner to bear witness to that reality? You know, you see it coming and you'd be like, maybe that's not it. Oh, they work better. They get to work on time. There's less excuses. It's almost almost like by putting white people in the mix Everyone feels they have to be on their best behavior. Even though it's a black owned company, my partner is black, I'm black. We couldn't get that kind of performance out of them, but the white man we hired does. I I think this is a sad commentary on our, our mindset, our mentality as a people. And yes, you can blame slavery for it cuz slavery certainly played a role in in that sort of thinking. But man, we got to get past that.
0: You've sorry. <laughs> That's I've experienced it. I'm I can't say I'm experiencing it now mm-hmm. uh, cuz you know, I, I love my work environment, I love situation work situation, but uh I've seen what you're talking about. And it it we had th- this we've been convinced that white liberals will save us. And I could see a workforce that feel, oh, our saviors are finally here and they so respond. Honestly, yes.
1: You know, when my business partner called me, I was in Detroit and he said, listen, man, we got a candidate for director because we had a black woman before our current um, director. And he said, He's white and he's openly gay, but I think he might be what we need. He said, what do you think? And I told him, I said, you know what? I said, this is either going to be our very best decision or our worst decision. I say, let's go for it. And we did. And so far, (laughs) it's been our best decision. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I want to uh-huh. just get some more information so because again I think there's a lot of people fasting mm-hmm. you ever been married do you have Never kids married.
1: I got two kids yeah
0: boy girl one girl how old my
1: son is 28 he'll be 29 this year my daughter just turned 27 in July I mean,
0: yeah in July what uh, do they do how are they doing my,
1: my daughter is a um, she's an attorney She she graduated from American University in 2018 and she passed the bar her first shot. I know John F. Kennedy Jr. took the bar four or five times, but my <laughs> daughter <laughs> took it once. You know, <laughs> And, and uh, uh, my son, he's an entrepreneur. He graduated from school. He sells real estate. He has his own car, sales business, and a clothing line in Atlanta. He asked me for nothing but advice. And that's all I ever offer to give them. My daughter she can get money from me, my son he can just get advice.
0: <laughs> What's next for Curtis school?
1: Um I'm looking I'm looking at doing some things with real estate in Detroit. I connected with some very heavy hitters in in San Francisco. Um a Asian guy, Japanese, and he has a lot of um Access to funding out of Hong Kong. He's putting up buildings like crazy in in San Francisco, and he's interested in coming to Detroit. I'm trying to make that happen. I want to get into the real estate development game in that
0: city. What's next for Curtis going in the media space or documentary film that type deal?
1: Uh, I I want to do a documentary on mental health because I'm very you know
0: um, crazy.
1: <laughs> Look, I'm very experienced in that field, you know, but uh, I also want my film work to pay for itself. So in order for me to start another film project, either this podcast or the film that I already made has to generate enough money to do it. I refuse to pay for any more projects out of my own pocket.
0: I want to end on this note, and I wanted I've followed Schoon TV, mm-hmm. the initial podcast. I want your thoughts on what you thought of Dr. Umar Johnson.
1: Dr. Umar Johnson,
0: you did a podcast yes, with him. Yes, yes, it's pretty powerful.
1: Pretty powerful. I I think Umar. Um, a lot of people ask me, "What's your personal assessment of Umar?" Because you know he's been involved with, yeah. with some controversy, and I I I really think that Umar is like a lot of people. I think he means well. I think he meant well. I think the mistake Umar and others make is they think because they are academically astute, it transfers over into business acumen. See, I I don't think Umar set out to deceive anyone. I think he merely underestimated what it would take to accomplish the mission he set out on, because making money is not really his thing. He's an academic. He's an intellectual. He knows a lot of things, and I'm not taking anything away from him. I, I think he gets his point across really, really good. You know what I mean? But that doesn't. We got to stop thinking because we're good at one thing. We're good at everything. You you gotta you gotta go out and recruit people. You know. Uh,
0: well, I think it goes back to not goes back to, because that's a different pocketbook, but we talked about when you interviewed me, we got to understand we need each other.
1: Yes. And so yes.
0: Umar's yes. ideas and his ability to articulate him, his point of view, pretty impressive uh, to me. And But he may need some other people to round out his vision.
1: You know, I, I, and I'm just saying this here, I didn't mention it to Umar or anything. But I want to see if I could help with his school idea. It would need some kind of um, redefining because it might be a little bit too radical, his mm-hmm. goals. You know, but that's where other people come and listen, man, if you want to get this done, let's rein this in a little bit and I could set you up. Let's ahead. crawl
0: before you walk. Yeah, uh, you, you, yeah. you understand,
1: but I would love to see it happen in Detroit. You know, and, and and if, you know, again, it's a lot of ifs here, but in my mind, I would like to give that brother a chance, if he doesn't make it happen on his own before then, to really show what his intentions were. And, and if I could help him with that and help the community and help young black boys and raise good, strong black men, I think that would just be a plus. Because... Also, when we black people talk about helping other blacks, it's not a racist thing. We we carry the burden of so much blame in this country that what's wrong with us trying to help ourselves and each other and not asking the government for anything? How could you be mad at us when we ask for help and then be mad at us when we try to focus on helping ourselves? You see, that's a contradiction
0: there. I'm not (laughs) sure. I'm not sure if a lot of white people have a problem with us wanting to help ourselves. Okay. Cause I, I shouldn't, I think it actually builds credibility. I, it makes your complaints more about, val- Oh, look what they're doing on their own. And now they're asking us to do X, Y, and Z. That makes more sense than, Hey, let me get X, Y, and Z. And then I'll circle back to A, B, and C. Yeah, Cause again, everything starts with us.
1: Yeah. We got to put skin in the game and, and talking about, what our ancestors did, that just don't cut it today. I mean, this whole reparations talk and all of this, I mean, let's just go to work, man. That's all. That, that's what I think. We just need to go to work. And I think we can
0: do it. Curtis, I appreciate you allowing me to ask these questions. I feel more up to date. Now when I read your tweets, <laughs> I got a lot more context and background information. Yeah. I hope viewers enjoyed this. We got to do this again.
1: My bad. Jason Whitlock. All right. (laughs)